It is mid-February 2021 and the planning podcast turns again to the NPPF and what the Court of Appeal has been telling us about how to use it and how to interpret it. Following on from our last episode, we now turn to two more Court of Appeal cases, this time conveniently brought together in respect of one issue, the tilted balance, how you get there, whether it applies, and what you do when you have it. With Satnam Chung and Christian Hawley, both planning environmental barristers at number five chambers, we untangle, or attempt to untangle, the tilted balance. So, hello and good evening to Christian and to Satnam. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Now, with uh, the sound of falling rain in the background, I'm here with you to look at two recent Court of Appeal cases, Monk Hill and Gladman, dealing with, uh, sequentially, uh, 11D1 and 11D2 in respect of paragraph 11, the presumption in favour of sustainable development. Unusually, two cases, uh, sequentially, in respect of those two uh, parts of the framework, uh, which address decision-taking and the presumption. And so, Christian, what on earth is Monk Hill about? Monk Hill, ostensibly, is all about AONBs and what implications they may have for the application of the tilted balance. But the reason it's interesting in terms of the the two cases that we've put together is, as you say, it's both of those limbs of paragraph 11. And you don't need me to tell you that as an applicant or every applicant, it's always desirable to have the presumption in place, to have the tilted balance in support of your application. Now, Satnam's going to talk about how that might play out if you were in paragraph 11 D2. I'm going to deal with the exceptions uh, limb of that, 11D1, in particular AOMB, but of course 11D1 deals with all sorts of other matters which might serve to automatically disapply the presumption. So heritage impacts, development in the broads, national parks, green belt. And those policies are to be found elsewhere in the framework. Each has its own discrete section. And The essence of Monk Hill was paragraph 172 of the framework, which the keen-eyed amongst you will know is dealing specifically with how development proposed in or affecting an AOMB is to be treated. And that paragraph is effectively in two parts because it contemplates both development outside of the AOMB, but in particular development inside the AOMB, which might be classed as major development. And if you are major development in the AOMB, then the policy is quite clear. It says that there are um, certain criteria within which you might be granted permission. They are exceptional and otherwise effectively the starting point is one of refusal. Whereas major or non-major development in the AOMB or even potentially major development outside the AOMB, all other forms of development, the starting point is that great weight should be given to the objective of preserving and conserving uh, and indeed even enhancing the natural beauty of the AOMB. And what Monk Hill's application was, was an application for residential development, conversion of a building, also some new housing, on various parcels of land, most of which lay within an AOMB, but not all of it. 
And the inspector in considering that, it was a case that went to appeal, of course, the inspector in considering that looked to paragraph 172, and it was agreed that it was not major development, but he found that there was an adverse, a significant adverse impact upon the AOMB, which would be occasioned by the development. And he found that in consequence of that, via paragraph 11, small Roman numeral one, that that was a clear reason for refusing the application and a clear reason for effectively disengaging the tilted balance. The consequence for the applicant and the appellant in that case was, of course, that they they never had the benefit of the presumption. It was taken away. And the argument was essentially that paragraph 172 didn't provide that effect, that all paragraph 172 did was say, well, this is something to which you need to give great weight. That can't be a clear reason and it can't be a policy for the disengaging of the tilted balance. And that essentially is what the case was about. And what the court found was essentially that that it could found a clear reason for refusal, that it was, of course, a matter for the particular facts and circumstances of a case. So the policy itself doesn't need to be worded uh, in such a way that it directs refusal or that it requires exceptional circumstances to be met. It is sufficient simply that the policy is one which, if offended, would stand alone as a reason for refusal in its own right, and so disengage the tilted balance. That, of course, leaves the question then, well, what if I have a proposal that does cause some degree of harm, but would not stand in its own right as a reason for refusal? Is the tilted balance engaged or disengaged? Now, reading Monk Hill and the reasoning both of the High Court and the Court of Appeal in that case, much of the debate was about essentially would the harm be a freestanding reason in its own right? Would it be a clear reason for refusal? And if so, then it is a reason to disengage the tilted balance. In the absence of it being a clear reason for refusal, it just being one of a multitude of harms that overall leads to refusal, then that would not be the case. And essentially what the court was doing there was putting a lot of that consideration back into the forbidden territory of planning discretion. So essentially setting the framework or the criteria out that yes, 172 can serve to disapply the tilted balance, doesn't necessarily automatically disapply the tilted balance, very much a matter for the decision taker. Well, that's really brilliantly timed by reference to what we discussed in what was uh, now podcast uh, episode number 19, which we looked at last week, because we had a look at the ASDA case, uh, looking at paragraph 90, uh, and what the Court of Appeal had to say in respect of that. And there, the Court of Appeal was concerned with the words must be refused. And the Court of Appeal there said, well, the words must be refused don't in fact mean that uh, the decision maker has to refuse. Here we're looking at a policy which doesn't use words remotely like have to be refused, but it nevertheless can provide a clear reason for refusal. You wouldn't really want to be a planner, really, would you? <laughs> <laughs> now, I think the, the interesting thing about 
Monk Hill is that the court appeared to be saying that w w once you're in one of those policies, if one of the policies in footnote six is engaged, you carry out some sort of balancing exercise out with the tilted balance. You, you don't go to the tilted balance. You first of all carry out a balancing exercise where you decide what harm is being caused, if any, uh, to one of those important interests, be it uh, A and B's, be it designated heritage assets, etc. You decide what harm is being caused. You weigh against that harm uh, all of the benefits. And if you think the benefits don't outweigh that, that harm, that is a clear reason for refusal. You don't move on to D2, and indeed you can't move on to D2 uh, because you've got to get through D1 first, and if you've already decided that that's a clear reason for refusal, that's the end of the analysis. What I find rather confusing is that if I've managed to persuade a decision maker that looking at, let's say, harm to A, O, and B, and weighing that against the benefits, there is not a clear reason for refusal, I'm not sure that I need the tilted balance. If I've managed to look at those policies, which are, which are the most important policies in terms of assets, they used to be called assets of acknowledged importance or interests of acknowledged importance. If I've managed to persuade the decision maker that the harm that I caused to designated heritage assets or the AONB or, or, or the Heritage Coast or uh, a triple SI, that there are sufficient benefits in my proposal, that that harm doesn't provide a clear reason for refusing the development. In nine out of 10 cases, I've probably got home in any event. I don't need the tilted balance. I suppose, I suppose what you have there, Satnam, is not a clear reason for refusal, uh, an unclear reason for refusal. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but, but an unclear reason for refusal is good enough to prevent you moving on to 11D2. And to 11D2, we can indeed move on, can't we, Satnam? Because we heard yesterday uh, some news in that regard about which I'm going to say precisely nothing. But you can tell us lots. <laughs> well, uh, the Gladman case, which was handed down yesterday by the Court of Appeal, neatly focuses only on 11D2 just as Monkhill only focused on 11D1. So if, if nothing else, there's a symmetry and a neatness to it all. And the issue that arose, um, as you will know, Richard, the issue that arose in Gladman was when one is in 11D2, uh, and, and Gladman, the Gladman case involved two appeal decisions where there was no dispute that the decision maker was in 11D2, because it was agreed that there was no five-year housing land supply. The question that arose was, that when the framework says in 11D2 that you carry out the balancing exercise, are you weighing the adverse impacts against the benefits and asking whether uh, the former significantly and demonstrably outweigh the latter? When it says you carry out that balancing exercise by assessing against the policies in this framework taken as a whole, do you do precisely that? i.e. assess against the policies in the framework taken as a whole, or do you assess against the policies taken in the framework taken as a whole and against the policies in the development plan? And what was being said on behalf of Gladman, uh, one may think not unreasonably, is that the, that the decision maker should do precisely what the framework says, which is to carry out the assessment in 11D2 
against the policies in the framework taken as a whole. You should not be introducing development plan policies back into the equation. And that led to the second issue. It was being said on behalf of Gladman that it makes much more sense to do things sequentially. So one deals with the development plan first and section 38.6 first. And if one comes to the view that there is a breach of the development plan, having looked at all the policies of the development plan, you then turn your attention to other material considerations. The framework is in the category of another material consideration. You look at the tilted balance, you apply the tilted balance, and if you pass the tilted balance, that then becomes a material consideration, which the decision maker may or may not decide outweighs the conflict with the development plan. So that, that, that was the way in which it was put by Gladman, and that was the way to do the exercise. And a third issue, I suspect a subsidiary issue, uh, was whether when you're in D2, uh, whether there's any role for paragraph 213 of the MPPF, which says that uh, in deciding what weight uh, one gives to pre-NPPF development plan policies, uh, you have regard to their degree of consistency with the framework. And I suppose that that sort of answers itself, depending on what answer you give to the first question, because if you are with Gladman uh, and, and, and you say that when you're in 11D2, you do not look at development plan policies, there's no need to have a look at paragraph 213 because you're not looking at development plan policy at all. There's no need to decide whether they're consistent or inconsistent with the MPPF and what weight to give to them. Sadly for Gladman, the Court of Appeal disagreed. They said, first of all, there's no necessity for this sequential uh, approach, uh, that the, the exercise could be done as a whole. The decision maker looks at everything in the round. And when the decision maker is in 11D2, he or she must not ignore development plan policies. You, you assess the adverse impacts against the, the benefits. You carry out that balancing exercise by having regard to all of the policies in this framework taken as a whole. And all relevant development plan policies as well. And the reason seemed to be that the framework didn't expressly exclude reference to development plan policies. Had, had the policy maker, had the Secretary of State wanted to say that one should not have regard to development plan policies, they would have expressly said so. 11D would have read when assessed against the policies in this framework taken as a whole, but not development plan policies. And because those words weren't there, it was necessary to bring back in development plan policies when carrying out the 11D2 balancing exercise. And because that was the case, paragraph 213 was relevant also. That, in a nutshell, is, what, is what's been decided. So it has. So it has. And uh, in fairness to the Secretary of State, they also ran a point as to particularly paragraph 14 in the framework, which deals with neighbourhood plans. And what has happened in the current framework is that part of the, the general policy and uh, what the government sees as imperative to support neighbourhood plans has been transplanted into paragraph 14 in the current version of the framework and is to the effect that where neighbourhood plan policies are breached, it will be most unlikely that the presumption would be in play. 
And so you have a sort of a bit of guidance in paragraph 14 in that regard. And the Secretary of State argues successfully uh, that that paragraph necessarily has to be taken into account uh, alongside 11D2. And so you are having regard to the development plan. And so because paragraph 14 is having regard to the development plan in the form of a neighborhood plan, you are, as a matter of fact, having regard to the development plan, even though the words of 11D2 say nothing about it. And so for all of those reasons, that's what the Court of Appeal decided. And we now have a Court of Appeal judgment which explains to decision makers uh, how they may go about the exercise. Uh, and so those are, it seems to me, two really quite practically uh, important questions in the sense that there is some guidance there as to what one can do. Uh, and particularly, it seems to me, in respect of Monk Hill, there's quite a useful section which tells you how you approach most of the questions that arise when you're looking at 11D1. But it is extraordinary, isn't it? March 2012 to February 2021, we're still toying with what on earth, what is, what must be the most important paragraph in national planning policy actually means. Yes. <laughs> Christian, what, what, what was your take on the Gladman case? We discussed this briefly. The starting point for the interpretation of any policy document is to give the words, as they are expressed, their natural and ordinary meaning. And as a starting point, having referenced the framework, the policies in the framework taken as a whole, does rather lead one to the conclusion that what you are dealing with is the framework as a whole and really not much else. I think the reality is, as, as is the case, as Satnam has pointed out, the framework is but a material consideration, an important one, a weighty one, but it is not the development plan it is not placed on a statutory footing. There is no presumption in favour of it because the presumption lies in, in according with the development plan. And it seems to me now that we're, I hesitate to use the term rabbit holes, but it's almost as if we're in the position you know, with the framework, that the framework's a material consideration of which we give weight. And then there's various exercises in the framework. So for example, in Monk Hill, is there a clear reason for refusal? Giving great weight in terms of AONB. Imagine if there was heritage implications there as well. We'd have to do a separate standalone... 196. 196 exercise, which is not tilted in any way and also only takes into account the public benefits and then feed that back through as well. And ultimately, I, I think what the court's saying with Gladman is, well, of course, the primacy lies with the development plan. And what the framework shouldn't be doing is in some way seeking to circumvent that. But equally, I, I, you know, I don't think it does, because ultimately it's still only a material consideration. Even if you've got the presumption, which, as we started with, everybody wants to have the presumption, it doesn't mean you're going to get a permission. It is simply something that is in your favour. And even if you've got the presumption, there might be some things that are, you know, a feature of your proposal, which overall are unacceptable. So it is, I think the language is, is used is a tilt, isn't it? There's a tilt toward granting planning permission, but that, that's really what it is. And to a degree, I, I think there's a, there's a desire to, 
you know, denude the presumption of some of its uh, power. If we take the court's interest and willingness, its idea of the primacy of the development plan, which is what it wants to, to, to emphasise, the question that one really needs to ask is, if one is in 11D2, why is one in 11D2? Well, the answer is, as a decision maker, I am in 11D2 because I've already decided that there are no relevant development plan policies or the policies which are most important for determining the application are out of date. So the starting point, or rather a staging post that I've gone through to get to 11D2, is I've decided, that in layman's terms, that the development plan is not giving me a great deal of assistance. And it's because the development plan is not giving me a great deal of assistance, I'm now going to assess the application in front of me by looking at the policies and the framework taken as a whole. It's not so much the, the, the fact that those who argue in favour of the, the presumption are seeking to get away from the primacy of the development plan. It's the framer of the policy, namely the Secretary of State, who was telling us in 11D that where the plan is not greatly useful because there are no relevant development plan policies or they are out of date, then apply this alternative test instead is the way I I look at it. Well, that's that's a fantastic set of insights into um, what is absolutely fundamental to so many planning decisions. Uh, so thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Richard. We'll see what, we see what else happens, but uh, you'll have noticed that I have expressed no view whatsoever. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> uh, but you've been very kind to me by what you haven't said, and uh, I'm very grateful to you. And uh, just for the record, I'm very grateful to Thea Osmond Smith, who did a fantastic job in the case. That brings us to what must be the conclusion of Court of Appeal cases on paragraph 11 for a while. <laughs> the famous last but, uh, uh, Famous last words. Um, but I do hope I can come back to you both in due course with the, with the next set of knotty problems uh, that are uh, posed by, by either the Planning Court or the Court of Appeal, because you've been fantastic, because this is the first occasion on which I've understood those cases. <laughs> Thank you very much indeed. See you both. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Richard. That was the Planning Podcast from Number 5 Chambers. In our next episode, we're going to return to the virtual because shortly it will be a year since our minds have all turned to how we deal with planning appeals, examinations in public, and trials in all kinds of courts when we don't have the ability to turn up. So, the virtual. And what we're going to do is turn to the practical. What have we learned? What can we pass on? How should you prepare for your next virtual event. Until then, stay safe and thank you for being with us.